This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. Now, Fight Back with Libby Snymer on Zoomer Radio. Good afternoon and welcome. Well, just over a month ago, as you heard in Bob's News, two independent bodies released guidelines and standards for long-term care. There was nothing about implementing those standards, and that was a point of criticism for stakeholders. Well, this morning, the federal health minister and the seniors minister made an announcement about those standards, and we were expecting something that would make them mandatory for facilities receiving funding. What we got, if I am reading this word salad correctly, is a re-announcement of a smorgasbord of previous funding announcements with an announcement about consultations on these standards. Ottawa does a lot of that. Also, the FBI became the second U.S. spy agency to conclude that the pandemic was started by a lab leak. Earlier this week, there was a huge fuss when the Department of Energy said the same thing, albeit with low confidence. I'd like to know what our panel makes of that and how this knowledge could help us prepare for or avoid the next one. The numbers to call 416 Toll free one eight six six seven forty four seven forty. Now time for the medical record. And now I'd like to welcome Dr. Malcolm Moore, a medical oncologist at Princess Margaret Cancer Center, former head of the BC Cancer Agency. Dr. Fahad Razak, an internist and epidemiologist at Unity Health Toronto and uh, former head of the science advisory table. And Dr. Elisa Naiman, a family physician and founder and medical director of the medical station in Toronto. Welcome, everyone. Thanks for being here. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Hi, Hello. Hi, good to be with you. Uh, let's Hi. let's start with Dr. Razak. So uh, now we have two U.S. agencies saying they believe that the pandemic was started by a lab leak. What do you make of that? And can this knowledge help us in any way get ready for the next one? Yeah, this is uh, this is obviously quite a striking announcement. Um, important to note that the evidence for why the Department of Energy said with very low level of confidence and why the FBI statement was made has not been released. So we don't know what led them to make this conclusion. Uh, let me give you a, kind of a, a state of where we are with this question. I, I think there has been a lot of controversy about where the virus originated. There's been some very large scientific reviews done, which acknowledge that there's areas of uncertainty, but the scientific community has still leaned towards it being most likely that this was natural transmission from an animal into a human host somewhere in the Wuhan region, perhaps in the market, and then it propagated out. And this pattern of animal-to-human transmission for a virus and then starting a pandemic has been documented many, many times in the past, and it's one of the reasons we have different flu waves from season to season. So it's important to note that there was a lot of precedent for it, but there was uncertainty. Then came this report uh, from the DOE, from the Department of Energy, and this FBI statement, and I think it highlights some other kind of unsavory elements to what happened in that initial question of 
where did the spread occur or how did it happen? And that is the politics around it. So China has been very opaque in releasing all of the data needed to make a proper assessment of what happened. Um, so the full data needed to make this call is just simply not available right now and has left gaps that have opened up legitimate questions, I think, about whether it could be uh, related to virus science that's being done in specifically the Wuhan Institute of Virology and a kind of science which is called gain-of-function uh, technologies. What this basically means is they try and see what characteristics could allow a virus to start to spread in humans in order to develop strategies to prevent that from happening. But in order to study that, they first develop viruses that have that ability. So the question is, could a science, scientific experiment like that have led to the outbreak? You're now seeing these two agencies say possibly so. But I, again, I want to emphasize that the bulk of scientific evidence from the scientific community still leans against this being the cause. And of course, in the middle of all of this is the politics where many countries are in a very difficult position in their interaction with China right now, including Canada and the United States. And so it just adds, I think, further fuel to the fire of this confrontation that's happening. Dr. Moore, does it uh, matter in terms of, again, preparing for or trying to avoid the next one, whether it was a lab leak or natural transmission? You know, I think it does. Uh, I mean, I agree with all, all what Bahad said. I mean, I think the issue is that you want to know the cause of something, uh, either to blame somebody or to learn from it, and uh, and so that you can uh, prevent a future epidemic. And I think the latter should be our perspective. It's not a matter of blaming somebody, and I, I think that is what has complicated this assessment of what actually happened. It's it's a matter of learning from it so that uh, this was really a catastrophic virus. And, and, you know, at the end of the day, I think almost 100% of the people that I know have had COVID. And so if this had been a more lethal virus, uh, you know, this could have been a catastrophic event. So I think the main thing is how do we prevent this happening again, uh, whether it be from laboratory safety issues or animal uh, husbandry issues, uh, you know, whatever we ultimately have to do. Right. But so, uh, but again, uh, I guess uh, if it was a lab leak is the answer just to make the lab safer. And if it wasn't, like, so how does this help us learn from it? Malcolm? Is this back? Well, I mean, I think that one of the, I think one of the things about Wuhan was that there was, it did seem coincidental that A, there was this lab there that was studying viruses. Uh, but I think they also have these uh, wild animal markets. And, and I think the sense has been that some of, of these markets where wild animals are, are, are sold, uh, you know, is, is kind of a high risk area for. Uh, something like this being spread from animals to humans. So again, I think there are measures you can take to limit the risk of these sorts of things. Hmm. Dr. Naiman, uh, in terms of uh, your practice, does it make any difference how it originated? In my daily, like in the practice, no. But I think overall, I think it's a good lesson that we need to learn whether it was a lab leak and that safety standards need to be improved in in Wuhan because there's documentation that there was it wasn't up to the level that it was supposed to be in terms of the testing that was being done, whether there needs to be further oversight of gain-of-function testing. So there's been a lot of controversy in the United States about the NIH and funding this testing and the potential dangers that happen 
and whether it was a leak or not, and whether or not gain and function testing was being done, it's a wake-up call to everybody that there needs to be further oversight so that these kind of mistakes, whether accidental or not, can't happen. And then if it wasn't, I think we need to consider the impact of future of future epidemics and pandemics and the impact of, you know, humans going into environments where there's more um, animals and the risk for further exposures that will happen. And it places us as a society at greater risk for having new infections that happen. So overall, I think there's a lot that can be learned. It would be really nice if everybody had the answer. I think everybody wants the answer. They found the answer very early with the original SARS. They found the answer for the, the source for MERS. Later. And then I think this has been going on for so long that people just want to know why. Uh, if I could add, Libby, one yeah. more point, I'll just say, you know, your listeners may wonder why even engage in something as dangerous as gain-of-function research. So this idea that you're going to cause, you're going to create viruses that have advantages in terms of their ability to spread or make people sick. The, the idea behind the science here is that you do this in a very controlled environment before it happens naturally from an animal to human spread so that in the event it happens, you have therapies, vaccinations, other things to protect people in place. If you look, you know, we're going to talk about uh, long-term care later in the call. If you look at what happened in that first year among vulnerable populations, for example, long-term care, the first year of the pandemic, before we had a vaccine, we had overwhelming mortality and catastrophes happening in long-term care. Absolutely. Imagine if there was a vaccine in place before the virus broke out in those long-term care centers. So there is a good scientific reason to want to do this, but it's extraordinarily high risk. And I think one of the things that the scientific consensus has landed on is even if it's unclear where the virus came from, although again, I think most science still points to it being animal to human transmission, the oversight of these labs is probably insufficient. Hmm. Well, yeah. And uh, if you're talking about China, I don't see how anything that the Western scientific community recommends is going to be taking, taken up there, right? Yeah, I, for sure, that's part of the question. But I think there is uh, mechanisms, carrots and sticks by which global oversight can occur. So, for example, funding often is shared between these labs internationally because it's so expensive to do this research. You can have situ- you can have policies in place that absolutely no funding of any kind can go to countries that don't have the strictest policies in place. So there are, there are mechanisms. Can you do it perfectly? You can't. But I think there's a lot more that can be done in terms of oversight. Okay, let's move on to long-term care. I mean, we, we were waiting with bated breath for this announcement this morning, thinking that it would move the process forward in terms of these standards, Dr. Moore, but um, we got a word salad. Well, I think what we got is an acknowledgement of the complexity of this system, right? It, it is a, you know, there's all sorts of different types of long-term care, and many are for profit, some are supported partly by the government. And so to, to put in regulations and, and actually, you know, carry them through, I think it truly is a complicated procedure. I, I think it's pretty clear that something has to be done. I, I think the key word in the, the news note before we came on was protect. You know, these are very, many of these individuals in long-term care are very vulnerable, can't speak for themselves. And so we, we do have a, a duty to make sure that uh, these people are well protected and are well cared for, because uh, even if they do have families, the families can't be there all the time. So 
I think we have to give the government a little bit of space to work on this, but just make sure that we move forward to some sort of system where ultimately, if you have a loved one or even yourself who has to go into one of these facilities, you have some assurance that the quality of care will be will meet a certain standard. I mean, it's further complicated, obviously, by the, the fact that many of the people who work in these organizations are quite poorly paid. And I think that also feeds into the issue of, um, you know, the kind of care the patients are getting because they're understaffed, uh, those kind of problems. And I think understaffing is a particularly big issue. Oh, yeah. And, uh, you know, again, we keep hearing announcements, Dr. Naaman, from the provincial government, which is really responsible for this. We we were giving X amount of dollars for X amount of people. Um, X amount of dollars doesn't necessarily get you the people with the snap of the fingers. I mean, we saw and Faha just referenced what can happen. It was, you know, it was terrible in long term care. And some of them the story was that people were left there and not cared for, and it wasn't even necessarily COVID. That's absolutely right. That's what happened was that a lot of people, there was just not proper care, and people died of dehydration. Um, and so is it a surprise that we had an announcement today that really didn't announce anything? No, I think that's pretty typical of all healthcare announcements. Things get announced, and then we wait, and nothing really happens. So is today a surprise? Not really. And what about you? I'm assuming that you probably have people who need to place family members or themselves. Um, from your end, what has to be done? The, the, so the problem is, is that people are still waiting for access to beds and from the community, and it places a significant amount of um, responsibility on family members and some family members are able to have somebody stay and look after their fam- look after somebody and other people they're busy and working and it causes a lot a lot of uh, stress on families because they see their family members decline and they're just waiting for access to a bed and they might be placed in a bed and not their first choice um and so really there needs to be more funding um, towards putting in more beds so that people can get access to these to these beds sooner. You shouldn't be waiting three, four years to have to have a bed available to you. Uh, Dr. Razak, is more funding going to fix it? I think the funding has to be tied to requirements and accreditation. I, you know, I have to say, in my uh, medical career, what happened to uh, individuals in long-term care in that first way was one of the most horrific uh, occurrences I've ever seen. Uh, 80% of the entire country's deaths from COVID in that first wave occurred just among vulnerable people in long-term care. We had one of the worst outcomes among any wealthy nation in Canada. The worst, the worst. Not one of, the worst. The the worst, the worst. It was, that shows you that it was not inevitable. There are ways that other countries with similar resources to ours could have protected our elders much better than we were able to do here. I think there is no way forward other than mandatory accreditation and requirements that these standards are met. The, the chair of the committee, Dr. Sinha, who you've had on your show a number of times. He, he, by the way, he's going to be on later. <laughs> so, okay. So, I mean, yeah. you have one of the world's experts, and he said, ultimately, this is a quote from him, he said, ultimately, it's going to be hard to achieve any meaningful change in Canada in these long-term cares unless we fund them, of course, 
but mandate the use of these standards. So funding without mandates, I think, does not achieve the outcome that we're looking for here. And we're this is a significant amount of money. So the the last estimate that I saw was upwards of $3 billion are being committed to improve long-term care standards and care. Put some criteria around these around the use of that money. And again, this is a population which is extraordinarily vulnerable from a medical point of view, and many individuals here cannot advocate for themselves. We have to advocate for them. Uh, Dr. Moore, you've been involved uh, at provincial levels. Uh, do you think that uh, it's political, like the failure to put in uh, mandatory standards from Ottawa, is, uh, is, is that, you figure, partly or, or largely political? Well, you know, it depends what you mean by political, I guess. I mean, I think that it is complicated. Uh, I think, you know, when the federal government released this new funding agreement with the provinces, there was this requirement, you know, for data and standards. And this obviously is one area that sorely needs it. Uh, but I think ultimately, whenever the public is putting in a lot of money to any, you know, long-term care is health care. Whenever the public is putting a significant amount of money into an area, then they have to ensure that that money is meeting the expectations that it was given with. And that's why I, I completely agree with Dr. what Dr. Razak said, is that we need to have mandatory accreditation of these facilities to ensure that the money that the public is putting in is, is being invested wisely. Yeah. Um Turning to another topic, this is um, uh, Shingles Awareness Week. Yesterday, we we did a show on it here, and the phones were off the hook. And, of course, it affects older people more than anyone else or any other demographic. Dr. Naiman, how much of your uh, – how often do you see that? And, and uh, do you have anything to say as advice or uh, observation? Uh, so interesting. After um, people got COVID, their I guess people's immune systems became uh, diminished, and there was uh, a bunch of people ended up getting shingles. And then, other than that, uh, you see a couple of cases of shingles per month. And yes, it happens more in in older individuals, but interestingly, it's also in in younger individuals. Um, a key thing for people to remember is that. Uh, there's a vaccine. It's a two-shot vaccine that's given over six months. And if you're between the ages of 65 to 69, the government will pay for the vaccine. Other than that, you're responsible for for the cost. And that if you've had shingles, you should wait one year to get the shot. Um, and that if you do think you have shingles, then you should be seen by um, a healthcare provider within the 72 hours because there is antiviral medications that can be given that can be quite helpful and probably the last thing that I would say is that people think that shingles is contagious, but it's only contagious to somebody who's never had chicken pox, and then they're at risk for getting chicken pox. If they touch an open, they touch the actual blister and the fluid of the blister. So just being in an environment with somebody who has shingles and you've already had chicken pox does not mean that you're going to get shingles. Okay. And Dr. Moore, um, how does this affect cancer patients? Because if you're immunocompromised, apparently you're at more risk. Yeah, so uh, I mean, first of all, shingles is not a not a pleasant thing, and uh, you know the pain that people get with the shingles is quite significant. In the cancer population, because 
some of these patients have a suppressed immune system because of the treatment they're on. The other risk with shingles is that it can disseminate uh, and you can get a more serious infection beyond just the shingles, which is commonly list, you know, limited to one peripheral nerve. And so um, it's important in those cases that those people are treated with uh, you know, systemic antivirals, but that's why we would always encourage cancer patients to uh, get these shingles vaccines. Mm-hmm. And can they do it while they're on treatment? You know, that's a really good question. You know, there's always been this concern about can can people respond to a vaccine when they're on cancer treatment because their immune system is not fully active? Probably the answer is they don't get as good a reaction to it but it's still better than not being vaccinated at all. Okay, I'm looking at the clock. It's time to go around. Um, Dr. Naiman, what are you looking at for next week on the horizon? I'm actually looking at Friday and the big storm that's coming and hope people don't go out unless they have to, especially I have my senior patients who are hardcore patients and will show up in a snowstorm. I'm always like, don't come. And then everybody else has to just be careful with the ice and the snow because the people end up having back problems. They fall. There's lots of fractures. So people should really be aware of the storm that's coming this on this Friday. Hmm. I didn't know about such a big storm this Friday. We also have March break on the horizon. Uh, Dr. Razak, are you worried about some kind of uh, COVID resurgence after March break? No, I, I think we, I mean, you never know, <laughs> but if you look at the trends with the virus right now, uh, there is multiple weeks of the wastewater signal, uh, which we used to monitor across the province, decreasing the percent of tests that are coming back positive is decreasing. There's been no major variant identified globally right now that uh, looks like it's imminent for spread into Canada. So I'm hoping that we are heading into the spring and summer now with uh, hopefully no further resurgences, at least on the short-term horizon of a major new variant. Um, you know, the other thing I'll, I'll say in the in the week ahead uh, I'm looking for is that you said today the announcements that uh, came out around long-term care. I'm really hoping that they start to put in some of the details now. So I think many of us were hoping we'd get some details today, but obviously it's a large amount of money and it's a complex system. We'd love to see some of those details. And as, you know, as I said, at the end of the day, this is taxpayer money. Uh, I would like to see it tied to clear standards that improve the care of people. Yeah, we're all waiting for that. Dr. Moore, last word to you. Well, just that, uh, you know, the thing with healthcare is every week we have this panel and every week there's new new things that come up related to health. And so it's hard to predict what next week's going to give us, but uh, I look forward to having further discussions with the panel next week. Okay. (laughs) On that note, we wrap things up. Thanks so much, Dr. Malcolm Moore, Dr. Elisa Naiman, and Dr. Fahad Razak. Bye-bye. Okay, we're taking a short break. And when we come back, we will talk to uh, one of the very few actually fully declared candidates to become the next mayor of Toronto, Rob Davis, after the break. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. Fight Back with Libby Snymer on Zoomer Radio. 
Welcome back. As we have been reporting, the field of potential Toronto mayoral candidates has been getting bigger. The sitting city councillors looking at it are still being quite coy. While doing lots of media, I might add, we often speak to Brad Bradford, Anna Bailau, and Josh Matlow, and we will be talking to them about their plans in the coming days. Now, today we talk to a former city councillor, one of the very few who has confirmed his intentions, and I'd like to welcome Rob Davis in studio. Hi, Rob. Thanks for dropping in. Libby, good to see you again. Okay. Full disclosure, I said this yesterday, many years ago. What was it? Probably 25 years ago? When we were both teenagers. When we were both teenagers, Rob was the city councillor in my ward, and at that point, I was quite involved in neighborhood things. So one thing I can say is that as a constituent, He was very good to deal with. Oh, my goodness. Now I'm blushing. Uh, Now you're blushing. Of course, that was before uh, there were 150,000 constituents in a ward. So uh, it was a a different time. Much easier to be hands-on, that's for sure. Okay. So uh, why do you want to be mayor? Oh, boy. Well, um, to quote uh, from The Godfather, I keep trying to quit, but they keep bringing me back or dragging me back in. I'm disturbed by... I, I think the the direction that city council is taking the city over the last little while, uh, I'm upset with the state of the city. I think people are concerned about safety. They're concerned about cleanliness. I think they're concerned that, that Toronto is no longer the kind uh, place of love and care that it, that it used to be. And I want to bring back uh, that era when we could walk down the streets, uh, take the subway, not feel like we're going to be accosted not feel like we're going to be assaulted. I want to. I want people to who visit Toronto to remark again about how clean the city is. Um, I want them to to you know to to walk down the street and not wonder why there are so many homeless people on the street. So how are you going to do that? Well, a couple of things. Uh, first of all, I think I think it's it starts with uh, having a clear direction and having a clear uh, philosophy around what the priorities are. And, you know, yesterday when I uh, announced that I was running, I, I held up a, a sign. It was, uh, it was this sign. And for those of you at home who are watching online, you probably uh, get to see it uh, through the YouTube video. Um, but if you can imagine. It says Dundas, it's Dundas Street West. Right. So City Council, for whatever reason, uh, well, I know the reason, but City Council de- decided to change the name of Dundas Street. Uh, and looked at 59 other streets at a cost of $21 million. And I thought to myself, there are homeless people living on Dundas Street, and the council priority is changing the name of the street as opposed to changing the lives of those homeless people. And I think that that, that this decision is an example of wasteful spending, but it's also uh, an example or a symbol of a misguided policy initiative. Woke? Too much wokeness? Well, actually, too much wokeness, maybe fake wokeness, because, you know, we've had this discussion uh, just briefly before I came on. Um, you know, if you want to decolonize uh, the these, vestig- these symbols and these vestiges from the city's landscape, I didn't hear one person say, change the name of King Street or change the name of Queen Street. So, you know, I think it's just disingenuous, but more importantly, we have other priorities. I know we have a lot of issues in the city. Uh, believe me, I've, I've seen them. I've been a part of that decision-making body. Dundas Street is not one of them. Not one black child, 
graduates from high school. Not one more black doctor graduates from med school. Changing the name of Dundas Street doesn't help anybody, but it sure as heck costs a lot of money. Uh huh. I'm trying to remember that this was all started by uh, a person. I don't even think he was black. The person who started this campaign. No. And, and and quite yeah. frankly, um, I, I'm appreciative of learning the history yeah. of some of the folks. I think it's a great thing. And and I want to tell you again a little anecdote. As a result of this, I went and looked up the names of the streets where I grew up. So I grew up at the corner of Vaughn Road and Humewood. And lo and behold, in my hood. There you go. <laughs> and lo and behold, Vaughn was a slave owner. Humewood is named after William Blake Hume, who was an abolitionist. So I literally grew up at the corner of abolition and slavery. I, I'm jokingly <laughs> saying with my mom. But 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 that's part of the complicated history of our city. It's part of the complicated history of our country. And I think um, spending too much energy and time trying to wipe out the history of our community is not the most important priority. Okay, but again, so is it a matter of money? I mean, these problems that we have, I mean, it's taken months and months, and city council can't figure out how to get garbage cans that aren't overflowing. And, and like, there's well, this you know, complicated explanation, right. a contract, la, la, la. Well, you know, uh, there are some solutions to that, and I'm going to talk about that later in the campaign. Um, I'll give you another thing that I think people are upset about, this uh, vacant home tax, right? Um it's a waste of time. It's a waste of money. It's a waste of energy. It's very easy to circumvent the tax. And quite honestly, it's an intrusion into our privacy. The fact that the city is now in possession of the personal information of hundreds of thousands of people telling us, you know, do they live there? Do they not live there? I just think uh, all of these people are at risk of having their privacy uh, uh, hacked into by, you know, like I, when you, th- Every week, a different company announces that they've been hacked, that their privacy, your privacy has been compromised as a result. And if I'm elected mayor, I'm going to cancel a, home, a vacant home tax. I'm going to destroy the information. We're going to make sure that your, your private information is not accessible to anybody. Uh, I'm going to ask you again. So how do you clean up the streets? Well, you start with some simple solutions. Um, I'll give you one. Uh, there was talk about uh, overflowing garbage bins, and then they yeah. and now some lobbyist somewhere, I'm sure, contacted a city councilor, said, "I have a solution." They're probably now going to embark on some twenty or thirty million dollar uh, uh, procurement process. How about put a second garbage can where it's needed, or pick up the garbage more frequently? than you have in the past for the places that need it. But it's a private company that is supposed to be doing that and blah, well, blah. Then, well, then you hold them to task. If I'm mayor of Toronto, we're going to, one, make sure that the contracts are in the favor of residents and taxpayers, not in favor of the lobbyists and the, and the contractors. And two, if there's a problem, we fix it. But we don't need to fix it by going on a 20 or $30 million, you know, a folly. And I think that's part of the problem. If you look at the, um, you know, if you look at even the 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 advisors to some of the people who are considering running. It's it's a funny thing, and it's a pe- peculiar thing. Most of them are lobbyists. Most of them are lobbyists. That should give people reason for pause. Well, at this point, I think most of them are city... Well, okay, you're right. 
They haven't declared. They haven't um, declared. So speaking of that, yes. yesterday I had my recovering politician panel. Oh, yes. And and one of them is a former mayoral candidate yes. who admitted that he would like to run, but he doesn't think that a lot of other people want him to run. And, and I brought up your name and he said, boy, you know, if he thinks that after uh, however many years it was, 25 years that he can just up and run for mayor, uh, he's kind of mis- mistaken. I love that. I love being It was under- George Smitherman, by the oh, way. George. Oh, great. Well, quite, quite frankly, um, you know, when I registered to run, I was 26 years old, Libby. In 1991, I was the underdog. When amalgamation happened and I had to run against my, my council colleagues, there were four or five of us, an M, a former MPP, a region, you know, a metro councillor and two or three city councillors and a trustee. I was the underdog. So I'm glad um, that George has sort of thrown down the gauntlet. Uh, I look forward to uh, having him come over to my campaign uh, victory party on election day. But in all seriousness, look. It's up to the voters to decide. It's not up to George Smitherman. It's not up to pundits. It's not up to retired uh, candidates. Um, and I'm just hoping that if people agree with my call to bring back common sense to City Hall, to focus on the things that are a priority, that they'll vote for me. What are you doing these days? Well, it's a good thing that you ask. Uh, I do some consulting. In fact, I've been uh, working on uh, with a, a number of community groups in the past, for instance, I was very involved with the uh, Ontario Autism Coalition. We had a big win in our campaign to uh, get the provincial government to uh, back under the uh, the Win uh, administration uh, to secure an additional two hundred million dollars for ABA and IBI uh, uh, therapies for children with autism. Um, I dabble in the markets, so once in a while uh, I trade options, and sometimes I make enough money to pay the bills. Um, and, uh, I've been involved in uh, lots of different community organizations, uh, helping candidates. Charmaine Williams was the first black candidate elected in Brampton. I worked on uh, her campaign. I remember that. And, uh, very proud of that. And now she's uh, the first black, uh, member of cabinet in a progressive conservative government. Um, okay. So, uh, do you have other potential candidates? They have released, you know, rosters of, of prominent people supporting them. Do you have, uh, a list like that? Well, I, I have a list, but I, I have to be frank with you. I'm interested in talking with everyday Torontonians. I'm not interested in um, listening exclusively to a group of people who are advising me. So uh, this month and a bit until the time to register uh, is a bit of a listening tour. It's an opportunity to hear directly from Torontonians about their priorities, the thing that they, the things that they think are important. And what I found in my time in politics in the past, there's a lot of expertise out there. There are a lot of people who are professionals who have a sense of and have expertise in how to do things. And so I want to hear from them. Um, you know, Libby, you, you did ask me a little bit about cleaning up the city. Yeah. Um, you didn't ask me about community safety. And I just want to put this out there. One of the things that I'm most proud of is uh, back when I was on council, I introduced Canada's first ever gun buyback program. And that policy has been adopted by city council. And really over the last 20 years since I've been gone, Toronto police have collected close to 10,000 firearms from the streets of Toronto. 10,000. I want, you know, I want you to sit with that number. That's a lot of guns. 
and I'm very proud that it was an initiative that I come up with. Uh, it's an initiative that I marshaled through council. Um, I, I, I spoke with firearms owners. I spoke with police. I talked to the gangs and guns folks. And we delivered for Torontonians. And even though I'm no longer on council, that policy is still delivering for Torontonians. Final question. What about money? You raising money uh, takes a lot of money to run for mayor. It takes a lot of money. I'm not a wealthy uh, individual and I'm asking people to make donations or at least to commit to making a contribution and to helping. But I'm not so much worried about the money as I am about the ideas. Um, You know, money is important in politics. I'm going to need people to make financial contributions as generously as they can. We'll take $2 donations. We'll take, you know, $1,500 donations. That'd be great. Um, But I'm more interested in in people coming out and volunteering and helping because I think um, that good ideas will overcome uh, money. Okay. Thank you so much. And good luck to you, Rob Davis. Thank you so much. Good to see you. Good to see you as well. And people over the coming days and weeks, we will be talking to the other candidates declared and otherwise. Thanks for coming in. My pleasure. Good to see you. And uh, we're going to take a break. And when we come back, we're going to talk to Dr. Samir Sinha about that. Was it an announcement this morning from the federal health minister and the seniors minister when we return? You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. Fight Back with Libby Zneimer on Zoomer Radio. Welcome back. Earlier in the show, we were talking about the federal government's announcement, if you can call it that, on long-term care. And for stakeholders' perspective, let's go to Dr. Samir Sinha, the Director of Geriatrics at Mount Sinai and the University Health Network. And he was also one of the authors of the guidelines. Hi, Dr. Sinha. Hi, Libby. How are you? Fine. Uh, so, What's your reaction this morning? You know, we were all waiting with bated breath and heard uh, nothing that was remotely anything new. Yeah, I mean, I think the key was that today, as the minister said, you know, the ministers both said was they wanted to, you know, again, re-announce the fact that we now have new national standards. And they wanted to uh, confirm that uh, they're committed to seeing these these standards implemented with the $3 billion they've committed over the next five years uh, to really help incentivize provinces to actually start, you know, meeting these standards overall. One thing that I thought was interesting was they've uh, mentioned the timeline for the new Safe Long-Term Care Act that both the Liberals and the NDP have committed to actually passing. Um, The minister actually did say today that they want to um, have that legislation tabled within a few months. Um, and that's reassuring to hear because I think that's going to be a key mechanism that could potentially help us implement and hopefully enforce these standards as well. Uh, I think you uh, hit it where you had said they wanted to re-announce. Uh, I mean, uh, you know, I don't even understand what the point is if they're uh, not heading to an election. You know, we hear re-announcements all the time. I don't really... How does this move the process forward without any kind of, um, you know, making anything mandatory or, or anything like that? Well, I think part of it is that uh, when we launched the standards a few weeks ago, we have to remember that it wasn't actually the government's announcement to make. It was actually one that um, the independent groups, the health standards organizations and 
Can and Standards uh, Association, um, the two groups that actually were tasked with developing these standards, we did these as as independent um, organizations, uh, you know, accredited by the Standards Council of Canada, trusted to develop this work. So that was our announcement to do that. I think what I was was pleased, and I think when the ministers were asked today, so why are you announcing it? Because they said, well, we want to now announce the fact that you've done this work, that we're endorsing it, that we're linking it with this money, um, and also trying to. Um, you know, recommit the fact that we are going to be passing new legislation. We are making, you know, billions of dollars of new investments, um, including reannouncing today $1.7 billion as part of these new health accords to specifically try and get personal support workers a living wage of at least $25 an hour or more, which is a significant increase in what they're currently getting paid for doing really important work. Uh, absolutely. But uh, again, uh, if there is no stick, right? I mean, uh, even in the last round, I forget the last round of whatever here in in uh, Ontario, uh, there were some long-term care homes said, oh, well, if you do that, we're not going to be able to meet the four-hour standard. I mean, if there's no requirement to meet the standard and you get your money, that's the same. How are things going to change? Yeah, well, I think it's the key is that we have to keep raising awareness. The fact that there are new national standards that exist, that 20,000 Canadians have said, this is what Canada's standard needs to be. The good news is, is that, you know, when you raise attention to these issues, you know, politicians can't ignore it for long. Ontario, at the start of this pandemic, was funding its homes, choosing to fund its homes to provide two hours and 45 minutes of care per resident per day. It was our long-term care commission that shone a light on the issue and said, you need to be funding at least four hours of care a day. And that's what our national standards have said as well. So it puts pressure and there are new dollars that are coming through now that are going to be linked uh, increasingly to these standards saying, look, you know, if you're not actually funding this level of care, if you're not funding your staff properly, you know, as we like to say, the conditions of work are the conditions of care. So I appreciate that. I would have liked to have heard more. I was pleased to hear that we finally have a timeline for this new Safe Long-Term Care Act. Um, I'm very interested to seeing that this money that is being announced and and uh, and these commitments, I'm hoping that the more that it's linked to these standards, the more likely that these standards are going to become, if you will, um, the real standard by which we can all expect long-term care to be delivered. But, you know, in Ontario, for example, right now, it, it remains, you know, with the Minister of Long-Term Care. And right now, our Minister of Long-Term Care, his response to the new standards, the new national standards, as he said, well, we actually have some of the best standards in Ontario. No, no, no. He wanna... said, he said, we have the best. Yeah, we have, thank you, Libby. We <laughs> That's have the what he best, said. And, we don't, and he said, we don't want to water down our standards in Ontario. Well, that's, I think, before the minister read the standards, the thousands of Ontarians actually said, no, actually, no, actually, let's show you what needs to be done. And, you know, here's the deal. You know, in Ontario, um, you can have the best legislation. You can have double the number of inspectors you did two years ago. But if they're not actually laying fines, if they're not actually doing useful things, if they're giving people voluntary plans of correction when they see things like elder abuse occur, then that just reminds us that, you know, things can be toothless unless you actually really back them up with enforcement in that. So what the key thing is I was I was 
I was pleased to see that at least our ministers of seniors in health federally are saying, no, not only do we endorse these standards and we want to announce them ourselves, we're putting billions of dollars around them. And in our conversations with the provinces, Ontario can now apply for money, you know, but it has to show that this money is going to be aligned you know, with what the government says should be good, high-quality care. You made a reference to yet another announcement from another level of government. It was, I don't know, a few days ago or last week. I lose track. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that was about the inspectors. So we know, especially during the pandemic, that there were, as a matter of fact, since the since this government came to power, there was almost no enforcement. And during the pandemic, enforcement was done on the telephone. Um, sounds useful. Uh, so we heard last week or whenever it was that there was going to be a doubling of inspectors. So uh, is that going to do the trick or were you looking for something else in that announcement regarding the fining? Well, this is the challenge, right? I mean, this government has come out saying, we have tough new legislation. We're doubling the fines. You know, we can find homes as much as $2 million now, $1 million if they do things wrong. The problem is, is that, you know, we have all these inspectors running around, maybe maybe just running around and making phone calls. But the problem is, is that when the inspectors are not actually enforcing things, when they give what we call a voluntary plan of correction, if I say to you, Libby, you know, you're abusing your residence, you shouldn't be doing that. I'm going to offer you an opportunity to create a voluntary plan of correction. What does that mean? That means you can choose to respond or not. There's no, I don't, there's no requirement that I, that you do anything. And there's no, there's no teeth where I'm actually going to come back and see if you did anything at all. That's what these inspectors are currently doing. I think it's garbage. I don't think it's anything in the level of accountability. So you can say we've got all these inspectors, we've got tough laws, but I want to actually see that we actually have people looking at the care that's being provided. And if they're seeing that things are not being done well enough, A, we support these homes and say, what do we need to do to support you to reach the quality of care we expect and need? And if you're not doing it, if you're a bad actor, lay a freaking fine. Because it's one thing to say you have a fine available, but if you don't actually ever give them out, then what's the point? Okay, so has this government ever levied a fine? Honestly, I think I can count the number of fines this government has laid under their new tough legislation or since they took power in 2018, probably on the fingers of my hands. That's it. And you know, I think they've, they, they made a big deal that they found they, that, you know, while they were promising every room would have air conditioning by X date, I think they laid two fines last year of $25,000 for not getting air conditioning, uh, by the deadline. Um, there might have been a few other fines, but we're talking minuscule fines, not the numbers the minister likes to tout that we can fine up to a million dollars, um, and never a fine about something truly serious um, uh, when you really have negligence. You have to remember, this is the same government that also put a shield around this long-term care home to protect them against getting sued because of the pandemic. Well, exactly. And uh, the thing that I had heard about that, that that was in response to uh, homes, both for-profit and not-for-profit, saying, if you don't do that, we'll never get insurance. 
You know, exactly. I mean, it's, it's, it's all these sorts of, you know, excuses, but frankly, you know, it's, it's one thing that I find I'm getting tired of it. I think we're all getting tired of it when we have politicians who talk tough, but then, you know, we're like, where's the beef, right? You know, where's, you know, like, where's, where are the results here? So what I'm really happy at least is, um, while we had an arm's length process develop standards that 20,000 Canadians participating in, at least I had the Minister of Health and Seniors federally saying, you know, we like these standards. You know, we had no clue what you'd come up with, but clearly the only complaint that we're hearing now, loud and clear, is why aren't they being mandated? Now, of course, the federal government can't mandate something over it has that it doesn't actually oversee and run. It has to leave that to the provinces and territories, but it certainly can use its money and it can certainly use other mechanisms to get more places kind of aligning uh, to these standards as well. And I'm hoping to see some real action in that, especially with this idea of the new Safe Long-Term Care Act. Mm-hmm. And do you have any kind of thought about, you know, once this Safe Long-Term Act is passed, uh, do you think that things will improve quickly or same old, same old? You, know, you never know. But right now, you know, Don Davies, the, uh, the, 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 the health critic for the NDP, you know, he came out the day after the standards were released a few weeks ago saying that he wants to make sure that the Safe Long-Term Care Act, which is part of the NDP and Liberal Supply and Confidence Agreement to keep this government in power, he said that he wants to make sure that these standards are mandated as part of that act. And mandating might mean that that can be part of inspection enforcement mechanisms. So, again, you're right. The proof's in the pudding. You know, what actually is that act going to say? Are there going to be teeth? Um, And if we don't tie these new dollars to these standards, it may be very hard to see us get meaningful change that Canadians are very clear they want and need. Mm-hmm. And well, even the the other thing that always seems to happen with dollars is that they're announced, they're reannounced, but it's a an awfully long time before they arrive. Absolutely. I mean, right now we know that this government uh, in Ontario, for example, is sitting on five billion dollars of funding that they haven't, you know, actually used. Yet we actually have a home care system and a, and a long term care system that aren't being given the funds. Uh, that they need to actually deliver the care that people want. And then we're wondering, why are our hospitals so backlogged? Why are people living in hospitals? Because we're sitting on a pile of dollars that could actually do a lot more good and actually make the system work better if we actually use them properly where they need to be used as well. So again, you know, it's it's one thing to talk. It's another thing to actually just get things done. Um, and we all want to see action. Okay. Um, what would you like to leave us with? Um, just let's stay on this. And honestly, Libby, thank you. Thank you for continuing to focus on these issues, asking the right questions and making sure that people stay accountable. Oh, you're making me blush. Uh, Dr. Samir Sinha, thanks very much. Thank you very much, Libby. Okay, bye-bye. All right. Uh, that is all the time we have for today. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show.